Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey folks, two quick things before we start. First, Dr. Jake Meyer was not a professor, but instead a lecturer at a number of the universities that I cited. Second, we are doing a big fundraiser. So we have been working hard for five years. Uh, as you might know... Xander, I, Nat, anyone associated with Reconsider has never gotten a dime out of the money that's flowed in. We always use it. Um, this is a labor of love. We do it for free. We don't get paid. Um, what we want to do now is massively expand our audience. Uh, and that means paying for marketing. I don't have time. Nobody has time. I don't have expertise. But we found a partner who's really, really good. And what we want to be able to do is keep working with this partner and get the reconsider message out to more people. Um, we think it's more important now than ever. And we're sort of at this like grow or die moment. What that means is we need support from many of you. We sent out an email. I know not everyone's on the email list and the response was absolutely overwhelming. We were amazed and humbled. Frankly, I was hoping that, some of you that are not on the email list that haven't seen that would also be willing to go to Patreon and contribute. We ask everyone who's a regular listener, if you can, drop a buck a show. If you want a shout out, two bucks is great, uh, and there's great perks at higher prices. So please, if you could, go to patreon.com slash reconsider. Your support would mean the world to us. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm your host, Eric, and I have the delight to welcome back Dr. Jake Meyer, PhD economist extraordinaire, who's joined us a number of times on the show to help us understand what the heck is going on in the world around us. And we keep a strong relationship with Jake. And of course, sort of those of you who follow us, as time has gone on, like, the the macroeconomics that that we used to all take for granted have just like kept changing in ways that uh, my financial advisor, for example, is is like ready to jump out a window over. And what we when Jake and I were last catching up, we figured this was a great opportunity. You know, new president, pandemics ending, lots of new like technology entering the finance space that kind of changes the whole game. You know, Bitcoin is is even bigger than the last time everyone said it was overvalued. 
um, all sorts of all sorts of odd stuff going on, or at least conventionally odd. And I was hoping, you know, I asked I asked Jake if he could help us with a few questions that we thought might be interesting to y'all um, to try to understand, get a big picture of what's going on in the global economy. Um, and he, of course, agreed to join. So, Jake, thank you so much for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you for having me on again. So, Jake, what I actually want to first start with is uh, tell us a little bit about Swiss Swiss Re or Swiss RE. Um, last time we chatted, you're at UBS. Um, you've, of course, been um, a professor at Columbia and at Claremont. So you've done a ton of stuff teaching people. Oh, right. And and Cal State Long Beach. I forgot. Uh, and so you've done a ton of work teaching people how economics works over the past decade plus. And what I'd like to understand a little bit more is uh, what are you doing right now? Um, so so at the, so at the moment, I'm at Swiss Re, uh, as you mentioned, and Swiss Re is a is a reinsurance company, which is more or less uh, an insurance company for insurance companies. And then and then given the given just the, the nature of the insurance market and, and the fact that Swiss Re manages their own assets, the, the macro outlook is, of course, uh, is, of course, very important for, uh, you know, for the firm. So so I'm here focusing on the macro outlook for the U.S. and Canada. Right. Cool. And. When I thought macro outlook as we were preparing for the show, one of the first things I thought was, so I have, you know, I have some investments and I have a, a financial advisor who helps helps me manage them. I'm a big mutual fund guy myself, but trying to diversify. And and every now and then this financial advisor and I catch up about the macro environment. As I mentioned, he's like ready to jump out a window right now because he's a big values, fundamentals guy. Austrian's not quite the word for him, but like he's a he's like an old school guy, and he's he's been you know really he's been really frustrated with stuff like PE ratios and and other stuff that he thinks like that that he thinks has the like at least the stock market kind of all out of kilter, and he's been feeling this way for years, and uh, and I think what's inter- so interesting about those conversations with him is that clearly it's he's 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 been doing this for a long time for decades. And so it it feels to me talking to him and doing my own reading that like the U S macro environment is behaving somehow differently than the way it used to. Like it feels like there's been a departure somewhere. And I guess like, let's just say that, I don't know, like, like you were an economist in 1999 and you like went into a coma and then you woke up, you (laughs) didn't see all this change over the past 22 years. And you popped up and looked around like, what would that person, um, what that economist who who just woke up, like, what would their first impression be, or what would they say about what they're seeing now? You know, that's that's a tough one, and I think there's a couple <laughs> of interesting of interesting directions to to go with on that one. Um, so so the, so so I think the first would probably would probably be, and this is this is a little more of kind of a dive into the the kind of the history of economic thought a bit, but but in in the in but in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was this there was this whole idea in the economics community that like we had beat the business cycle to a certain extent, right? Like we were in this great moderation and things like that. And then, of course, as uh, you know, as we all know, but this economist, you know, doesn't. There was, you know, there, there, there was a big crash in uh, in the early 2000s with the with the collapse of the dot com bubble. And then, of course, a way larger business cycle event in uh, in, in 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 the late aughts with uh, with the housing market collapsing. So I think the one thing that would be, you know, that would be interesting for, you know, for that economist to look at or, or, or perhaps a little bit shocking is, you know, is how their, how their perceptions about what was um, about the nature of, of, you know, stability in the business cycle and stability in uh, financial markets was, you know, 
rather wrong, <laughs> you know, uh, at the, in that uh, in you know in that time period. But but I think what would probably be even more interesting <clears throat> is how is how the standard economic uh, orthodoxy about about the recovery from from these types of events has has changed in the time since. So if you look at the recovery from, in particular, after um, uh, after the collapse of the housing market, there was just an unprecedented monetary stimulus, largely unprecedented fiscal stimulus that was that was really being pushed out. And then the in the standard economic, or, uh, you know, orthodox, uh, you know, thought at the, or orthodoxy thought at that time would have been to say that well, this this large scale fiscal stimulus, this large scale monetary stimulus is going to drive up inflation. It, it, you know, it's gonna it, it's gonna it's gonna generate these. This sort of these sort of overheating conditions, and, you know, and instead we saw the opposite. We, we, you know, we saw very, very low inflation for for a long period of time. We saw this. Uh, we saw very low growth for a long period of time, and 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 I think that uh, and 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 I think that what would what's probably the most interesting element of this right now is is how this is how that how the economics community learning from that experience. Has changed their perspective on what's happening right now at this moment, and, and and I think what's happening at this moment is what would be most shocking to this uh, to this economist, where we've we've introduced you know something like six trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus in the past year or so uh, with the five with the five phases of, of stimulus, um, and and we've we've engaged in uh, you know in, in unprecedented monetary intervention as well, with the idea that that well when we tried this after the housing boom. And then it, you know, it wasn't enough. Fiscal stimulus wasn't enough. Monetary stimulus, we, you know, we have to go bigger, right? So these, so you know, so first off, these headline numbers would be shocking to this, you know, to this economist that went into a coma in 19, 1999. <laughs> but I think there's, but I think there's a strong argument to, to be made that the, that the, or there's at least an argument to made that the, that the economist, you know, from 1999, you know, might actually be be a little bit more right than than the people who lived through the, the recovery from the housing crash because there's there's you know seems to be a possibility that, that we might have learned the wrong lessons from that experience in in, in 2008 where where if you look at uh, if you look at why that inflation was low why you had that growth drag is because we were in the middle of this like deleveraging cycle where you know everyone you had a house that was say four hundred thousand dollars the value the value went down to two hundred thousand dollars and they lost a lot of net worth right you, you had you had companies unloading debt you had you had everyone selling, driving down prices, driving down balance sheets and such, and that was the reason for the drag. Whereas what we see now is something completely different, right? This is not a balance sheet driven, you know, driven crisis. It's a, you know, it's a virus that that, that came out of nowhere and 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 you know, and the global economy like shut down for for you know about a year. And so, and so I think there's I think there's a fairly strong argument to be made that this you know economists waking up in in, in 1990 being shocked by the you know by the size of the stimulus that, that, that we're seeing now might actually be be correct to a certain extent and, and and we might be seeing that the approach that we're taking right now with maybe not the earlier um, maybe not the earlier stimulus packages but the later ones and the infrastructure package right now that we're you know we're, we're attempting to throw this bazooka of stimulus at the economy. Which might have made sense in 2009 because it was a balance sheet recession, but it, it doesn't make sense right now because we're you know it's not a balance sheet recession. You, you know when we reopen, things will more or less go back to normal relatively quickly. Without that, without that just bazooka of stimulus there. One of the I, I've I've got so many possible follow ups. Um, one of the yeah, sorry that was a long answer. For our listeners, 
No, it's no, it's really good because I think it's thorough and it's it lets us like be a little bit fractal. Fractal. One of the one of the, like the micro questions is just as a reminder for our listeners, what's the difference between fiscal and monetary stimulus? Uh, so fiscal stimulus would be would be the federal government uh, it, borrowing money and then spending it on something, right? The the monetary stimulus is actually changing the amount of cash or uh, you know or, or cash equivalents in the system. So basically, so so monetary stimulus is a Federal Reserve pushing, uh, you know, pushing cash into the uh, into financial markets to change the money supply, whereas fiscal stimulus is basically borrowing money and then spending it to just kind of boost boost demand through that mechanism. Yeah, the way I think about it is like is that monetary stimulus is like making it easy to borrow money so that like the market can go do stuff with that capital and fiscal stimulus is the government is is choosing where to spend that, building projects, stuff like that to like, you know, one, have infrastructure, but two, like employ people or, or otherwise like keep people employed. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and the thing too is there's, you know, there's also an argument to be made that the, first, that the you know, at least the first few stimulus package, stimulus packages really weren't stimulus as much as, as much as relief, right? Yes. Yes. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly this year because people couldn't work, right? It's so like normally right. your stimulus would be, Hey, we're gonna like put money out there in the hopes that it like gets people back to work and gets that flywheel going, you know, because people make money and then they spend money and that employs more people. Right. The whole painsy thing. But if you're telling people they gotta sit at home, you just gotta like just gotta give them food, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well and then also you have to, you know, you have to try to keep businesses afloat because like it's of course much easier to destroy a business than create one, right? Yep. So if you can keep if you can keep businesses from you know from being destroyed, and you can keep them afloat. Uh, until uh, you know, until this until this passes, you're much better off than if you know every restaurant in in, in America fails, right? Right, and, and the whole industry has to start from scratch. And speaking of which, you one of the other things I want to pick on is you said that like you know this with this this bazooka feels unnecessary in part because it's it seems that because this isn't a balance sheet recession, the economy would like would snap back a bit um, more quickly. You know, I, the Trump administration talked about a V-shaped recovery and. Uh, or someone said K-shaped. I don't even know what that means, but whatever. Um, maybe you'll be able to tell us. But the but given like given that there has been, you know, to your point about it, it's harder to build a business than destroy it. Like you know, I walk around downtown San Mateo and I see at least a few, you know, lease, you know, four lease signs around that weren't around a year ago. And I suspect that is true of many towns in America. Is there? Are there some fundamental problems, you know, besides the government debt load, are there some fundamental problems that would prevent the current, you know, like, let's just say, let's just say, like, somehow we were just able to reopen tomorrow. You know, it does seem like we're primed for growth, but are there fundamentals that would, like, keep that growth from just snapping back? I mean, it's it's you're definitely going to have you're definitely going to have some drag effects, right? Because I mean, I and and I don't know the numbers offhand, but um, right. but you, you know, but there there definitely was quite a few, um, you know, in particular service service sector oriented, um, it, you know, businesses that you know are gone, right? And then it, you know, then as and as mentioned, it's you know, starting a new business is not something that you know that happens on a dime, right? Someone has to be willing to right. take that risk. Someone has to someone has to develop the you know the idea, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, it's it's in it, and, and and I think that's been one of one of the things that <clears throat> it will hold us back to a degree, but I don't think that's but I but if we're comparing the the amount that the balance sheet recession held us back in two thousand nine through two thousand you know two thousand eleven versus what how this holds us back now, it, it's just no comparison. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's, so while that's absolutely you know absolutely true, 
it's that you know these sort of balance sheet effects whether it's whether it's in a boom or a deleveraging cycle are are the tie right i mean they're just it's just a massive effect whereas right. this is you know you know whereas this is you know it's important and you know and of course extremely real to the people who you know have who have experienced it but from but looking at it you know looking at it in terms of in terms of the numbers that you know that we'll see from the economy it's it's i mean it's it's dollars and dimes first right and and one of the things i i've been thinking about as i see these for lease signs up is that one due in part to our like you know our, our, it feels to me like historically different monetary policy of like ultra low interest rates high capital availability so you have you have banks with lots of money and they're looking for places to deploy that capital and you have landlords with for lease signs up who are like, please, somebody bloody lease yeah. this thing already. And therefore willing to adjust some prices. So it sounds like it seems to me, at least by logic, that there's like a favorable environment for entrepreneurs to get access to capital at a good at a very, very good price and access to real estate at a very, very good price. And are therefore able like in a good position to be able to go make something happen. Yeah, and the and the only thing that and I would generally agree, and, and the only potential thing that maybe throws a, a bit of cold water on that is 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 the difference in between how how easily that capital available, uh, sorry, how easily available that capital is to big companies versus small companies and you know and entrepreneurs, yeah. right? Because it's you know it's been a very big thing throughout this entire pandemic, and then you know and to a certain extent even before that uh, that it, you know because of and, and the before is a little more is a little more nuanced of uh you know of an issue related to the nature of the banking system and such but it's but it tends to be the case that it's it's very very easy for you know for for big companies to raise capital and it's it's very very difficult for you know small like mom and pop entrepreneurs to raise capital and the and and you know the engine of of innovation isn't you know it doesn't tend to be the big companies it tends to be new companies right which you know which which tend to you know at least start small um right and then so that's going to be and so i do see that as something that could very well you know, that could very well hold people back because or I'm sorry, hold the economy back because the person who's, you know, the people who are coming in and, and you know, and, and look into lease space and put in a restaurant or a bar or coffee shop or something like that, you know, it's not going to be Amazon that can, that can borrow it like 2% or whatever. Right. It's going to be, it's, it, it's good. It's going to be someone wanting to do it who, <laughs> you know, who's going to go to their local bank and, you know, may not have an existing relationship that, that makes it easy for them to facilitate that. Speaking of which, the, you know, I remember, so we had um, Spike Cohen on the show, like almost a year ago. Um, and for yeah. those who don't remember, he's the, he was the VP candidate for um, the Libertarian Party for 2020. And, you know, one of his like big criticisms of the way that the lockdown was managed was that in most states, it was the lockdown was like prohibitively painful and difficult for very small service companies like a salon, right? It was, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the government, the state government go like, well, you don't need a haircut. So, okay, we'll shut down the salons. You don't need a bar. You don't need to drink in public. So we'll shut that down. We'll shut down the restaurants, all the little stuff, but you know, you need to buy like toilet paper and, and food and such. So let's keep, you know, let's definitely keep Walmart open and let's keep home Depot open and let's keep, you know, and Amazon, of course, they're delivering like crazy. They're making tons of money. And so he, what was interesting is he painted this picture of a, you know, a medical regulatory environment, regulatory environment is the wrong word, but like, but, and, you know, these, these emergency measures, almost wartime measures 
inadvertently created a now he's a politician so of course he said it was it was it was intentional but but that inadvertently created an environment that like favored these really big corporations and hose these really small mom and pop shops and um does it you know and obviously amazon made tons of money walmart made tons of money does it seem like we're we're gonna see a permanent or semi-permanent you know consolidation where like if we look kind of post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic that like i don't know that but what would be our statistic? Like it would be like revenue divided by number of companies or something like that, like goes up, right? Where you have like fewer companies, like fewer just total corporations out there and like more of the more of the services that we interact with are are consolidating to fewer and fewer big companies as opposed to, you know, is it is it sort of like the doom of the mom and pop shop? Is are are these small companies kind of like not going to bounce back? I don't know how else to ask it, but those were eight ways of asking the same thing. Yeah, so there's, I think there's a couple of really interesting dimensions here, and, and so I think, I think first off, and, and this is just kind of, you know, provide a little context to what you just laid out here. You know, if you look at actually the spending and sectors of the economy throughout the pandemic, um, like like uh, like certain like certain consumption sectors, like 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 uh, durables, right? Uh, like like you know, durable goods would be like a washing machine or right stuff like that. Um, that that actually rose, right? And, 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 the, you know, and the reason that arose is because of the fall of the spending in the service sector, right? We, we, you know, it's, you know as, as you say, as you say, like people, people can't go get a haircut or, you know, or buy a beer at a bar or, uh, you know, go out to eat at a restaurant or whatever. So, so, so a certain portion of that money is now being spent in, in, you know, in, the, in, the, in the good sector rather than services. And I, and I don't know the numbers off, you know, offhand, um, though I should because I was looking at them today. But um, but um, I should. It's my job. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, but I mean, I I, I want to say I, I want to say at one point the the um the you know the spending on services you know it might have been on Q three of twenty twenty had, had fallen had fallen you know something like over fifty percent from uh you know from what it was before the pandemic or so it was somewhere in that ballpark. I mean, and 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 I can't remember wow. if it was I can't remember if it was fifty percent. Yeah, I, I think it was like sixty percent or had fallen like forty percent year over year. Or yeah. something of that, or something in that ballpark, and then, it, it, and, and then you know, as you mentioned, some of that is going to go towards, uh, you know, towards durable goods. Um, but the, you know, but the thing I think in terms of concentration that's really interesting is that um, I, I, I very much would expect th- that concentration to increase in, you know, in in the, in the more good sector, right? And, you know, we've seen that for for decades with stores, right? I mean, the the you know, mom and pop star store versus walmart or target I, I i mean that that transition is is, is almost over right right in, in in a lot of ways but but i but i don't see that sort of but i i one i don't see the shift from goods from services to goods as being something that continues right because once people are able to yeah. travel and go to a restaurant go to a bar go to a nail salon or hair salon or or, or whatever you know they're going to go back to doing that you know yeah. human preferences uh you know didn't change in, in you know in that front and, and, and those sectors, the service sector tends to be much more oriented um, towards towards the mom and the mom and pop places. Right. I mean, like, as, you know, as, and as, as far as I'm aware, there, there really aren't, you know, there really aren't that many like chain chain barber shops, Right. right. Um, right. And, you know, or chain bars that, you know, the people really that or I should say the chains aren't dominating the sector. And I don't expect. Right. That, right. Whereas like whereas that's a transition that's that's basically happened already on the good side. Got it. Cool. The other, the other, the other thing I was thinking about regarding the recovery is, 
Oh my God. It just, it's felt like we were in a bubble forever. And I feel like last time we talked, I said this and it feels like even worse now in some, in some ways, uh, at least to me. And, and I think some of it, the two things that come to mind, like thinking about this potential recovery, um, actually there are three things that come to mind, but the two in the private sector are, you know, PE ratios are very high and, and by very high, I mean like, you know, make my financial advisor want to jump out a window high and debt ratios seem very high. Now, access to capital is very cheap, so you can like refinance and stuff like that. But, and I don't know the numbers at all, but it does seem like both of those are very high and both of those seem dangerous. And I was like, look, I'll be honest, when, when the pandemic hit, you know, I wrote this like whole treatise about how this was going to be a, a, a truly like centennial level depression, right? These debt ratios are already high. The stock market is already overinflated. The government already has a ton of debt. I mean, I think you and I talked about this last time. We talked about like goosing the economy in a time when it was hot. And it meant that the government would, the US federal government would have, this was for the Trump tax cut, that the US federal government would have like less ability to do that the next time it really needed it. Um, and I, and, and now this was more me saying it and, and you were kind of talking about the options. So, so this was like my prediction that was cripplingly wrong, but I feel like my prediction was cripplingly wrong last time that we were in a bubble and it was going to burst. Uh, but it feels like we're in a bubble again. So I don't know. It, this is, this is in part why I kind of had my like coma question. Cause it just feels like, again, it feels like we're living in this different world now, but, um, but like would conventional, like would would you know if you got a bunch of economists in a room together like would they say we're in a bubble or would they say that like you know that that we're we're actually primed for growth um so, so the thing is right like, like like as you you know as you mentioned there's you know things like pe ratios which by the way pe ratios refers to price to earnings so so yep. equity prices uh relative to corporate earnings if you think about what a stock should be worth in the long term it's uh um it's uh you know it should be in some sense worth uh you know driven by what sort of earnings the company is bringing in right so so the idea here when we talk about pe ratios or other valuation measures like the total market cap to gdp and such we're talking about are stocks expensive relative to some underlying fundamentals right and and they've been expensive relative to underlying fundamentals for for quite some time and and actually i think we're finally approaching levels that are that are you know on par or, or you know or are around what we saw near the end of the dot com bubble so i mean well well and and while i wouldn't go so far as to say that 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 necessarily means that we're in a bubble i mean and, and i would agree that that risk is there you know for sure but the but the big difference in between but the big difference now um between what those ratios mean right now versus in say two, 2000 uh you know or so um, is is the effect of interest rates on what on what we would expect those ratios to be? So if you think about so if you think about what uh, if you think about what a stock should be valued, just you know very abstractly based on these earnings that are coming in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If, uh, if interest rates are low and then earnings way in the future are, you know, are discounted using low interest rates rather than high interest rates, the present value of that dividend in 20 years or something is a lot higher. So, so you can, so you can quite easily justify, uh, higher valuations, uh, you know, right now when interest rates are like zero, uh, compared to in, uh, in 1999 or 2000, when, when, when the 10 year yield was something like six and a half percent ish, something like that. Um, so it's it's, unimaginable number now. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, yeah, that would be catastrophic if it happened today. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, but but yeah, so I mean, and, 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 and there's something similar going on with like debt loads. And this, and this is both public debt loads and corporate debt loads in general. If you look at the trajectory of both of them, starting in, say, 1950, because I'm going to just make, make my argument easier and ignore World War II, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and its effects, on, and its effects on, the, on the debt. But, you know, if you start, if you, start you know, 50, 60 years ago, something like that, what, what you see is this, is this, you know, this more or less uh, long-term trajectory of falling interest rates. With them finally, you know, at what we think is around the floor right now, um, you know, about as low as they can go, but we'll see. Um, and then, and then correspondingly, this, this, uh, you know, long term increase in debt loads, and, you know, and of course, there's a rationale behind this, right? Um, if you're paying, if you're paying 1% on your debt, you can carry and support a much higher debt load than if you're paying 8%, right? Yeah. Like, like, like what we saw like in the late 70s and such. And so, and, and so, and so while it's, and so while it's very much the case that, um, that both these valuation measures and these debt measures you know, suggest a, a non-trivial level of risk, as long as interest rates are low, that, you know, there's a decent chance that you know, the risk doesn't manifest. And, and then speaking to your point about, uh, you know, about, how, um, you know, you know, about how because there wasn't, um, it, you know, there wasn't as, much, as much space as expected for fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, Based on the, the growing deficits and falling interest rates in 2018, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that say that that perspective is wrong per se. But mm. the limit, the limit of of what uh, you know of of how far we could go before we hit that problem, before we run out of before we run out before we run out of money, we can borrow uh, you know for fiscal policy or cash we can create for monetary stimulus and such. The limits are just you know apparently uh, you know a lot higher than most people, myself included. Um, mm. it, 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 you know, thought was likely the case, uh, you know, a few years ago. But I mean, I, I feel like very few economists would argue that those limits are there, you know, right. but, but, you know, any economist that takes a hard stance on, on, <laughs> on where those limits are, I probably am not going to consider very trustworthy because, you know, right. we just don't have a, we just don't have, we just don't have a good idea. So, I mean, yeah. So, so you know, so I think just, to, you know, briefly kind of wrap it up and, and, you know, and summarize it, the risk of a, a, you know, of a big correction is there, but the reason that things are operating differently now and we've had these this long run growth in valuations, this long run growth in debt is because is because the low interest rates can support it. Mm-hmm. Now, so so you know, off the top of your head, you know what's been happening with long run interest rates in the past three months? Uh, something about like yield curves. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. So the so and now so and, and this is this is where things get interesting, and this is where yeah. the, the the diciness could come into play. Right. right? And now, so I'm I, and and I'm not saying I think this is. I'm not saying I think this is, you know, you know, 
going to happen or, you know, or, or, or even, you know, likely to happen. I mean, but it's, you know, it, it is a real possibility. Um, is that, uh, is that what's been happening over the past four months is, is the, the U.S. 10-year sovereign yield has risen by, by about three quarters of a percentage, right? Which is, which is a sharp rise right now. And we're, and, and we're still pretty far away from, from where, it, you know, in my view, we would start to create stress um, in, in, uh, in, you know, in debt markets. And there's a variety of technical reasons for that that I, I feel like we, we probably don't want to dive into. But, um, but if, you know, if interest rates continue to, you know, continue to, 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 you know, to sharply rise, then all of a sudden those equity valuations, you know, become untenable, right? The, you know, the debt load, you know, could become untenable. So, you know, so these rising interest rates are, are you know, are, are the thing to watch out. You know, yeah. and it's a and it's a tail risk. You know, it's not a it's not a base case, but it's it's a relevant tail risk. And to to help me and and therefore I'm sure some of our listeners better understand. So this is the this is the ten year interest rate, and and that ten year interest rate is the interest rate on essentially like the government floats a bond and it sells it on the open market. And it says, "Who wants to buy this bond?" And I'm going to adjust the interest rates on this bond, so it's an investment. I'm going to adjust the interest rates on this bond. And when I find a price like, or, or, and, and the price is driven by supply and demand, right? And right now there's a lot of, the government wants to release a lot of these. And um, at some point, the, like, at some point what's going to happen or what's like, when that interest rate goes up, it's because it can't find enough buyers at the lower interest rate. So it has to raise the interest rate to get people to buy it. And raising the interest rate means that, when we sell this bond, let's say we borrow a trillion bucks at a higher interest rate means we need to pay back more than at a lower interest rate. And therefore, this interest rate going up creates a potential debt challenge for the U.S. federal government in the future. What am I missing? Oh, so that's so so the so the, so the, the thing I, the one thing I would add to that would just be that um, the 10 year the 10 year yield is, of course, you know, it's directly it's, it's the cost that that the U.S. government borrows at. Over a ten-year time frame, right? But right. It, you know, it also is is like is you know a very very key driver of what the private sector borrows at, right? As well, mm, because yep. it's um, it, you know, I mean, if, it's of course not like a one-to-one relationship in terms of the movements, but I mean, it's it's you know, if the if the U if the if the U.S. ten-year moves, <laughs> the, you know, corporate borrowing at the same at the same you know maturity is very much gonna gonna track it um, right. for for the most part. So you know, so so. So when I say the U.S. ten-year sovereign, I'm using it as a proxy more so yeah. for just like like nor like borrowing cost overall. Right now, okay. and, and and the only thing I would I I would kind of mention about your you know your your comments on 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 the you know the rise in ten-year why it's doing so is that actually it you know it, it is driven by supply you know supply and demand like you know it is a market price but in practice it's very very much driven by demand <laughs> more so than uh, you, you know more so than supply moves because it's 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 such a liquid market that it, that changes in the in the in the supply of ten of the uh, you know of the ten year you know uh, or you know even U.S. government debt in general isn't really what tends to drive the movement. What tends to drive the movement is market per- and the yield is market perceptions of the inflation outlook. Over that over that time frame, so so you know if if markets think that inflation is gonna is gonna go up quite a bit, then well, all right, I'm not buying that bond at one percent because it means I'm gonna lose money in real terms right. if inflation rises to two and a half percent or whatever, right? right? So 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 if they so if markets are expecting higher inflation, they you know it pushes that yield up to you know correspond to inflation. So you know so really the the, the you know the big driver 
of 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 these uh, you know of, the, of these long run borrowing rates for the government and therefore for the you know for everyone else for the most part is the inflation outlook and the inflation outlook has shifted a lot in the past in the past uh, four months or so I mean I, th- I think market perceptions of the and this is, you know, again, a technical, you know, technical market based, you know, assessment, but, you know, based on derivatives, but, but the, the market expectation of, of, of inflation, of, you know, inflation rates over the next five years has, has risen by, I want to say almost a full percentage over the, over the past uh, four mm-hmm. months. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's, what's driving yeah. that, that 10 year yield up. Yep. Yeah. That's really the key driver. So, so this, you know, so this idea of, of, you know, rising inflation expectations, pushing pushing interest rates up and then how those interest rates affect affect whether the current equity valuations are justified and the current debt levels are sustainable right, right. that that potential for the for the 10 year yield to you know it, it continue rising by you know quite a bit is is what creates that tail risk of those equity valuations not being appropriate or you know being you know or, or, or those equity valuations resetting and you know and crashing a bit or uh, you know, in debt becoming not sustainable. So, you know, so, so that's, so that's really the, that's the risk there. But again, I see that as a tail risk and very much not a base case. Right. Yeah. I think the, yeah, it's, it's inflation. I, I remember, you know, there've been a lot of, um, I don't know who to listen to, but like, there've been a lot of kind of like doomsayers about inflation for the past almost 15 or since 2008, basically none of them have come to pass. Now the other the other thing I often think about is, I don't know if you've seen this, but so I'm a big Friedrich Hayek fan. And um, now I know he's like, he's been dead longer than we've been alive. But I remember specifically, I've actually read his books. But one of the things that comes to mind specifically is the rap battle YouTube video between Friedrich <laughs> yeah. Hayek and John Maynard Keynes. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. yeah okay. Excellent. Yep. So yeah, that was, that's all- George Mason, the George Mason economist. Exactly. Uh, I think put that together. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's obviously so like, so, so, um, disclaimer, it's a very pro Hayek bias to, to this, this rap battle, but I'll post both rap battles in the show notes. It's, it's quite, Oh yeah, there is a second, isn't there? There's a second. Yeah. It's the, the second is the one where, uh, yeah, where, where he's going into security and they, you know, they put on the latex <laughs> glove for him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so during this rap battle, I remember specifically Friedrich Hayek is talking about like the low interest rate boom is frightening, not because of inflation, but because it's going to create a bubble. And the reason it's going to create a bubble is that like massive capital availability is going to cause this like what's snapping up of resources for, um, you know, essentially you have like more money than you have like places you can put it. And because there's like only so much labor and only so much material, now maybe that's changed in the digital age, but what, like it, it, I had always, you know, my grasp of economics is, is certainly not PhD. D level or even bachelor's level. But my impression is that one of the risks of sustained long-term, very low interest rates is that the is that the too much capital availability is in fact a bad thing. And what I think I'm hearing from you is that low interest rates mean capital availability is high. And this is actually good for now because it allows us to like, you know, get, you know, get capital at good debt at or at at, you know, good prices, get money at good prices and like sustain you know, sustain the like long-term future outlook of, um, you know, a profit of these companies and therefore keep their valuations high. So there's not a risk of that collapsing. But what about this like Hayekian idea of, of uh, essentially creating a bubble? Yeah. So there's, um, I, I, 
I mean, so there's definitely there's definitely an element of truth there, right? And I, you know, I mean, I think I think pretty much pretty much you know every well, I don't want to say every, but you know, at minimum, you know, the vast majority of of economists that study the financial sector and you know, the international financial system, you know, system will tell you, yeah, I mean, there you know, there's definitely risks associated with too low interest rates as you you know as you kind of uh, you know, as you end up funneling money towards towards unproductive, you know, unproductive endeavors, um, and you know, and you build up and you build up some of this bubbly type behavior and you know and things of that nature. Um, and, and and I think there's I think that there's a lot of markers right now that it's a concern, right? And 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 that would actually and this is really just kind of the the counterpoint of you know of what I was talking about previously, right? Because you know, because while there's certainly certainly an argument to be, to be made that uh, you know that the valuations can you know can be appropriate. You know, at these low interest rates, well, you know, the interest rates aren't going to be that low forever, right? And so, and, and you know, and, and so, and so, what we're almost talking, what we're almost talking about here is two sides of the exact same coin, right? So the, so you know, so the sort of Taylor risk that I'm talking about here with, with rising interest rates would, in a certain sense, you know, just kind of be Hayek's perspective manifest, you know, to a certain extent, right? Because, you know, it, you know, it definitely, it definitely is the case that if interest rates are too low. Right, too low being something distinctly different from just low. Right. Um, there, you you know you do create this you do create this risk, which you know which thing you know when things revert back to uh, you know towards a normal functioning financial market, it, you know can you know can cause this you know risk to manifest. So I mean I, I I definitely think that's a risk, and I and I think to to a certain extent what we're what we're looking at here. Is 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 what you talk about with this question, and, and what I talked, and what I was talking about previously, as almost just two slightly different ways of of saying similar thing, right? But um, but I mean, I, I would say looking mm. at what's what, what this Hayekian idea of of low interest rates and and you know stimulus in general, monetary you know fiscal creating creating bubbles is is to really look at the markers you know of that, and and, and there are markers in the standard financial system for sure. Right. I mean, there, it's not like there it's not like, you know, the, there's a bunch of like like red flags. But there's plenty of yellow flags, out. The, the, you know, very much in line with this, you know, with this perspective. Um, but uh, but with the big place that I would really point at to, you know, to say that, hey, there's you know, there's definitely some behavior that's looking, you know, bubbly is, is like crypto and like NFTs and things of that nature. And then, you know, parts of the stock market, I, I mean, like like looking at the whole like GME and AMC thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not something that happens in normal, well-functioning markets. Right. right. That's not, that's something that happens, you know, that happens when, when, you know, when a bunch of people are, you know, one, not able to spend money on anything because they're, you know, because they're stuck at home and two, have a bunch of cash on hand because, you know, a large population of is a large portion of the population is still working and mm. and, and has received, I'm not sure, several stimulus checks, you right. know, over the past, uh, you know, over the past year. And then and, and that money is just flooding into these unproductive investments. And, and, you know, and that's a big part of why, uh, you know, why we've seen some of the behavior of the stock market that we have, because people who are bored and can't spend money or, you know, <laughs> bet on sports are, you know, are playing around with like GME calls. Right. Right. Uh, which is, you know, just kind of a, a nut situation. But it's, 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 you know, it's what's happening right now. And then, you know, I think probably even the clearer one is these like, is these like NFTs, uh, which are these like, which is basically like, like trading like, creating like a non-fungible token for like a video or like an image or something like that. Right. And, you know, the, the sort of thing that, you know, you could, you would normally just go watch on YouTube and now it's, now it's costing you money or something to, to buy it and own it. Right. And, and it's, it, you know, and, and these are the, and these are kind of the, you know, the, the behaviors that to me are, are, are much more clear markers of there being frothiness in markets and there being some some of that you know some of that speculative 
some of that speculative mania. And, and and I'm not saying, and I'm not at all saying that it doesn't exist in, you know, in, in the, the equity market in general to a certain extent. But I mean, I, it's just, it's just so clear in areas like these NFTs and crypto and the right. meme stocks that it's that, you know, you know, to me that that's the spot where, 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 you know, where I think it's just, it's just crystal clear that there's that, it, you know, that, that the situation that we're in where everyone's stuck at home and, you know, getting handed cash has created this, 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 to a certain extent, bubbly environment. But right. I mean, and, I, but, you know, but the thing is, too, is, is part of this is that because we're, you know, stuck at home in a pandemic, markets are just not functioning like they would, uh, you know, generally in terms of, in terms of, in terms of getting resources to, you know, to where, to where they need to be. Right. So, I mean, so, you know, so normally if this was happening, if this was happening, I'd be much more concerned about the state of the economy as a whole. Right. But, it, but, but I think, you know, but I think right now, where there's been just all these unprecedented actions taken to try to, to try to, you know, protect businesses and try to try to keep things afloat while this is going on by just kind of throwing money at the problem. I mean, I think this is, I think this is almost just, you know, the fact that that money is not going to be allocated efficiently is, is, is just a give, right. Give, right. Uh, you know, given the way that it was, given the way that it was, it was dispersed. And then, and then, and then, you know, the, the places that, you know, it went where it didn't need to go to. Yeah. That's going to create, you know, that's going to create, you know, bubbly behavior in places. But but I think that's more of a microscopic problem than a macroscopic problem, mm. you know, in, in the sense of it, in the sense of in the sense of whether of whether that's suggestive of, of true bubbly behavior in the overall macro market. And the yeah, just to just just so you don't get any like death threat from any meme stonk uh, investors at, in in uh, in the reconsider audience, you're not you're not saying that like you know retail investing is bad. Because uh, I think there's, I've heard some like defensiveness about this. It's no. more that it's more that this is a sick, like it is, it is one of the you know people people looking for like where am I going to put my money and speculating speculating heavily on NFTs, on Bitcoin and crypto, on certain you know mimetic stocks. Like and and you're really betting on like other people's kind of like wild speculation as opposed to the fundamentals of the stock because nobody would ever say that uh gma is worth 200 dollars, right own, right it's just not and so and so that level of speculation being so obvious and so blatant by a large portion of the population not just your conventional or not a large portion but by retail investors as opposed to just your conventional hedge fund folks whose like job it is to speculate in a hedge way it's just a sign that there is that there is like that there is a fair amount of capital availability and they're like the thing i'm at least the thing i think i'm hearing is that they're like folks don't have like ob- don't feel like obvious good or obvious traditional places to put their money, such as like my underperforming mutual funds are a good place to put it because you know that's like sort of the nature of speculation is that like a bunch of people put money into something it goes up and other people go like holy smokes it's going up I want to put money into it too. Right, right, yeah, and, and, and you know, and, and the point and the point that you make about it, you know about retail stocks versus you know versus the specific GME thing is you know it's very is is very true, right? I mean, I'm 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 very much not making the case that uh, you know they know that retail investors shouldn't be doing that. You know, you know it's it's great that they are, but there's you know but there's a difference in between you know in between you know a sustainable long term investment process. Um, uh, you know, undertaken by a retail investor, and and then you know, and a, and a bunch of people who are who are bored because they're locked at home, kind of <laughs> you know, kind of talking to each other like, "Hey, let's pump GMB to the moon, right?" It's I mean, yeah, they're strong, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not, yeah, that. that, that I mean, that's just not. That, that, that's just not a, a indicative of a health of a healthy, sustainable, well functioning market, right? 
The other thing I wanted to ask about was, you know, federal federal debt, because we did mention this a little earlier in the show. We mentioned it last time, but I think federal debt to GDP ratio went up to something like 130% in 2020. And that is, of course, the highest it's ever been ever in the United States, because um, I think in World War II is like 105, end of World War II is like 105 or something. Yeah, um, yeah, we did crack the World War II uh, soon. Yeah, by a bit, by a good bit. Yeah, and, yeah, not not by a little bit. And yeah. um, you know, and of course, what's interesting is what what happened right after World War II. Well, massive infrastructure spending, but also super duper high taxes. You know that like Eisenhower's famous like ninety three percent top marginal tax rate, which like I guess it's one of the nice things about a wartime economy is you can like get away with doing that. Can't so much do that in a peacetime economy. Um, so with this very high, you know, and so like there are some things that look like they're parallels in the 50s, 60s, 70s are great. But but is there, you know, are we are we getting to a point where, you know, U.S. debt GDP ratio is so high that risk averse investors are going to be less interested in taking on U.S. debt at a good price? Um, and therefore, like debt servicing starts to become a meaningful, you know, a meaningful burden to the U.S. federal government, especially in a time when there's a lot of demand to spend more. Right, both on infrastructure, but also like healthcare and stuff like that. Do you see any? Do you see any like risks? Do you see any risks there? To yeah, I mean, generally the economy, because of course, if debt servicing becomes a major factor, you either have to just spend less domestically or tax more domestically, or both. Yeah. So, and uh, and I, I want to briefly kind of kind of digress and just add that that uh, you know a big part of the falling debt load relative to GDP, right, which is of course the only real metric that matters, right. Um, in um, in uh, you know in the post World War II era, well, you know, was because also given that we were coming out of the Great Depression, and then like Europe was covered in a layer of rubble. Um, yeah. there, there, you know, there was like a period of of you know an extended period of like four or five percent like like GDP growth, right? right? So I mean, so I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, it, it, there it, you know wasn't even so much that that was being was being paid back. It, you know, the, the raw debt load was being neutralized, and the economy was just booming. Right. right. And it was and it to be it's very quickly became a lot smaller by comparison. Right. And, and I think the thing that's tricky is that, you know, is that while is that while we're, we're looking at probably, uh, you know, probably a very near term boom, uh, you know, of like a year or so. Yeah. Uh, the, the you know, the outlook for for long term sustainable GDP growth r- right now is probably more like two percent instead of, you know, four or five percent. So we're just not going to have that that extended very high growth that, uh, you know, that that more or less neutralizes that debt like we saw in like the 50s and 60s. So I mean, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and, and that and, and that creates a problem, you know, for sure. Um, it, now, now the other option in, in terms of in terms of how this debt would most likely be, you know, be dealt with would be to inflate it away, right? Because you know, and, and inflating it away would be much more would, would be something that that's much more politically palatable than you know than actually just really hiking taxes very high, right? And and and, and you know, and, and more often than not, I mean, just just because of the way that that politics you know functions. When you have when you have unsustainable debt loads, the country either defaults, which the U.S. will not do, um, or uh, you know, or inflates it away. I mean, it's 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 pretty rare unless there's significant external pressure from you know from like the IMF, or, you know, the World Bank, you know, to see these you know large deficit or I'm sorry, large surpluses paying down debt, well, outside of oil producing countries, right? Right. <clears throat> right. And and uh, <laughs> you know, in the end, the IMF is not going to come in and pressure the United States to you know no. run a, a primary surplus. That's just not going to happen. Um, so, so the issue, you know, you know, so, so the next thing you look at in terms of what they might do would be, would be to try to inflate the debt away. 
Yeah. And now where this becomes a problem is if we think back to what I was talking about previously about that inflation interest rate and uh, and um, <clears throat> that inflation interest rate uh, interest rate and then you know stability of uh, you know of debt markets a relationship that I uh, you know that I was talking about previously you know because if you see if you see inflation rising well then what's that going to do to you know to long term interest rates well you know long term interest rates are you know very much driven by inflation uh, or I should say inflation expectations. So, so you know, if the government tries to inflate it away, now you run the risk of triggering that that tail risk that I talked about previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, in terms of equity markets, which would be which would be problematic, but you know, but probably not devastating if you if you really trigger that. You know, in the macro sense, you could trigger that risk in equity markets. But more importantly, what that could do in like corporate debt markets and such, right? Because you know, because corporate debt markets are you know are are, are in the short term and in relatively good shape right now, which I, I think would be shocking to you know to a lot of people. But but the reason that they're in, yeah, but, but 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 you know the reason that they tend to be in, in, in but the reason that I say that they're in very good shape is that is that basically when long term interest rates went to like zero, you know, throughout the pandemic, everyone just loaded up on zero interest rate debt. So so all so all these corporate so all you know so the so the corporate sector has a whole bunch of 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 you know debt that isn't due for ten more years and a whole bunch of cash you know sitting on balance sheets. Um, and I assume they're able to even restructure old debt. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that's kind of what the cash, you know, to a certain extent, what the cash sitting on balance sheet is for, right? Because if they, you know, if they have old debts coming due in the right. next three years, then yeah. you know, interest rates went to zero. What do you do? Oh, right. you just, you know, you just, you just raise a bunch more, you just raise a bunch more capital. You let it right. sit on a balance sheet and prepare to pay it, you know, to pay the uh, right to uh, to uh, you know pay it back when, when the bond comes, you know, comes due. Right. Right. Um. So yeah. So and you know, and then and then farther, and, and then farther the the um. And this is a bit more technical, but I'll kind of I'll kind of keep it high level. But but if you look at the amount that they're still able to raise it out at the moment versus what they have to actually pay out in coupon payments, which is a very which is a very you know you know this being a very um, cash flow you know day to day oriented sort of uh, you know sort of consideration, mm-hmm. the the interest rate they you know they're borrowing at is still way below what they have to pay to service right, not even to roll over. So the right. corporate so the corporate sector is. It's pretty well insulated right now, but the you know but the but the issue becomes is that if the government if the government you know does try to inflate away debt, then then now you're talking you know now you're talking high inflation for an extended period of time you know and then and then you could actually you know start to trigger uh you know trigger vulnerabilities in the corporate debt market because even though in terms of a, you know of a cash and a cash flow sense the corporate sector is 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 you know quite good at the moment. Uh, you know, one the you know smaller businesses are are very much likely not, and and it, you know with their borrowing and such, and two, and two the you know the debt loads are huge, and they do have to eventually roll it over or you know or pay it down, and then if that uh, and then if inflation and their you know and their poor interest rates are are very very high when that does you know come due in in you know eight seven you know seven eight years and you know and such when they start uh, you know having to roll it over, then now you very well might have a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and so circling so circling back to the base idea of what we started with here, the in terms of dealing with, you know, dealing with the debt load, um, you know, if, if the U.S. government's going going to reduce it, one, the extremely high growth uh, that dealt with after World War Two is very, very unlikely to happen Two, right. there. There's, you know, a lot of structural risks uh, that come in the, in the financial sector that come with these that come with this, you know, this um, this that come with any attempt. To try to deal with it by inflating it away, um, and then and then there's you know there's very much not there's very much just 
not gonna it's very unlikely that there's that there's the political the political will to deal with it by either cutting budgets or you know or raising taxes so it seems you know so it seems to me like it's like it seems to me that i would not be surprised if we if we just if we see this this very large debt load just sit on the balance sheet for you know this very large debt load to GDP just sit there for you know a, a, a very extended you know amount of time. But mm. you know, much like with Japan, which I want to say right. uh, has their debt to GDP somewhere somewhere north of or before the pandemic, they had north of two hundred percent, and it yeah. had been sitting there for you know for <laughs> quite a while. So, so I mean, I think the so you know from a debt sustainability standpoint, I mean, I think that I think that what we're going to start to see is is a return towards more fiscally prudent. Uh, you know, you know, spending patterns in the medium term, um, but but I would be very surprised if we see any of the any of the factors that could reduce the debt load actually come to pass. Yeah. So yes, right now Japan has approximately twice the debt load we do at two hundred sixty six percent, which is horrifying to imagine. But but you know, Japan Japan is not collapsed. Of course, Japan J- Japan's uh, GDP has stagnated since the you know, 80s, 90s boom. Is that due to their debt load or was that driven by, you know, they were doing import substitution and and tried to wean themselves off that towards a more liberal economy or or something else? Um, I mean, that's a bit of a million dollar question, right? <laughs> but, okay. it's, um, but I mean, uh, it, you know, to, to, just to kind of quickly throw a couple of thoughts out there. I mean, there was it, it, Japan, it, you know, Japan kind of, you know, over that time period was undergoing a big demographic shift. Right, you know, which creates a you know a lot of a lot of structural pressures uh, towards you know towards lower interest rates and such as the population aged, and then you know and also increased you know increased debt loads from from spending associated with that, and and then they also for for quite a while were were under were undergoing a a relative mild price deflation, but mm. a but a relatively large tangible asset price deflation, right? You know, and things like real estate and things like that. Um, so you know, so that sort of balance sheet, you know. That balance sheet sort of deleveraging cycle that we had that held back our you know growth for you know and from like 2009 to 2000, well you know for like five years after that, Japan Japan basically had going on for like the entirety of the 90s, right? right. So so that combination so that combination of that of that deleveraging cycle and, and and then and then the you know the demographic the demographic shift are are the big things that I would that I would you know start to point to, but mm. you know but I. Again, I mean that's a you know that, 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 that's a that's not something I want to I, I want to I want to sit here and, and say that oh that's my confident answer yeah. right just a couple of things that I would point to I think yeah I think the reason I asked was like ooh are we going to go the way of Japan which is like not the worst thing but it's not the best thing either and um and it sounds like the indicators are not like it's it sounds it sounds like it sounds like government debt load was not the thing that stagnated Japan necessarily. Yeah, that was more of an effect than a cause. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because when GDP doesn't grow, your debt GDP ratio doesn't shrink. <laughs> yeah. And then, you're, and then you're, you know, you're collecting uh, less tax revenues and, and right. likely paying out more like social spending and such. Yep. So, yes. And along with your population getting older and all that stuff. Yep. yep. It makes sense. The what's interesting is like in, in a way that I in a way that I don't know how to articulate to myself, but I feel like less horrified about the future than I thought I would be. But it still feels like there's this kind of like just there's this like weird mystery to it where where we're just like kind of wondering how far we can push it, like how far we can push government debt and how far we can like we can push interest rates for how long. 
to kind of like keep things chugging along here. And so maybe this is an opportunity for me to just ask you, like, kind of given everything we've talked about and everything that I failed to ask, um, like, what what do you think is going to happen? I mean, so so, so the thing is, right, is if, if we look at what's happening in the economy right now, we're we're very much getting boosted by by you know all this money that's being thrown at it, right? But you know, on fiscal and monetary stimulus, which you know, which which will stop, right? Um, right. The in the fiscal stimulus will you know will probably will you know probably turn into a net negative well i mean the fiscal stimulus will will, will probably more or less stop in, in the next next couple quarters whereas whereas the the monetary you know stimulus probably won't start to be rolled back for a couple more years so what what i expect to see is 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 you know a, a very strong growth for you know for the remainder of the year as um as the stimulus gets spent the money that people have saved up because there's there's a huge amount of excess savings floating out there in, in the economy right now, or I shouldn't say the economy, but in financial markets right now and, and bank accounts and things of that nature. And, and, uh, and, and then those two things combined with, you know, just base reopening effects, right? People being able to, you know, travel and go out to places and, and you, know, you know, spend money that way. I would expect to see, you know, to see very, very strong, you know, economic growth um, over the next year or so. But the problem becomes is that, is that, uh, is that after that, you know, boom this year, um, well, you know, that uh, fiscal stimulus that created the boom is, is, is unlikely to be replaced. You, you know, the savings, the, the pent up savings that are being spent, like, are going to be gone. Um, well, you know, once you've reopened, you aren't reopening again, right? So, 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 what, I would, so, so what I expect to see um, is, that, uh, is that once we get through this, this initial just very big boom that we're, that we're probably going to see throughout the, throughout the remainder of the year, um, is, is, that, is that we start to see, a, you know, a fairly significant drag. The and the year or two after that, um, as that uh, you know, um, as all these you know, as all these factors that uh, that had combined just create that big push right to GDP and the economy, um, right. just you know, go away and, and and are finished, you know, without replacement. I mean, so so that's kind of the big thing. Um, and 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 financial markets. I mean, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at, I mean, I think uh, I, I think a very a very important thing that uh, that was driving. The you know the big equity the big equities booms previously was this uh, you, you know was people kind of was people kind of pushing money into the market because there was you know there wasn't really anywhere else to spend it and that's going to go away right so you know so those sorts of upward pressures in, in equities mm. and then I would ar- argue probably more importantly in, in areas like crypto and, and, and NFT are probably NFTs are probably going to uh, 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 probably going to go away so I mean I think there I, I I think there is I think there is you know a, a fair bit of risk of of you know at, at least a moderate equities correction coming up um yeah. interest rates i mean I, I i expect interest rates to you know to keep rising uh for, for probably probably another year or so and then um i'm sorry long-term interest rates to keep rising for probably yeah. another year or so and then start uh and then and then and then probably after that point go back to their long-term secular downward trend unless you know unless the government does try to uh does try to inflate away the you know the debt which is a realistic possibility and then i i would say aside from that i mean i, I think the only other Really big thing that's un, that uh, is is extremely un, uncertain, kind of on the on the economic outlook, or at least on the policy outlook, would be the infrastructure package, right? right. So, and I mean, and, and I mean, and my understanding is right now there's a there's a phase one proposed at like two point two trillion, which is maybe like half what we would consider traditional infrastructure, and and, and half that's maybe not quite there. And then right. there's and then there's a, a phase two like one trillion dollar package that is. That is is very much seems to be kind of social spending just just packaged and, and, and you know with an infrastructure label. 
and so and so I, I think that and I think the thing is with the economic effects of these. So well, well. So first off, the, the phase one package passing more or less what it looks like now is is not going to surprise me. The phase two package, I, I do not expect to look to look anything like that, or, or you know, or to look close to that when when it does get passed, because I would expect moderate Democrats to balk at that a bit. But right. but uh, but one thing that we're seeing right now in in some you know corners of the you know the discussion is. Is, is people talking about the stimulative, the stimulative effect of the infrastructure package? You know, and, and while that very well might be the case on a five-year timeline in terms of boosting up, uh, you know, long-term growth, in the near term, I, I, I think people are so used to these big packages being just, you know, passed and dispersed that they're kind, of, that, you know, they're kind of forgetting that the infrastructure package is one. Um, it's for, it's proposed that it's about, you know half tax funded, you know, which you know so obviously cuts that two point two trillion in half in terms of the stimulative effect. Uh, but then also it's expected to be dispersed over, uh, you know, over about 10 years. Right. right. So, right. you know, so you're really, you're really looking at like a hundred billion a year, which is, you know, which is, which is not meaningless, right. In terms of stimulus. But I mean, it's, it's not this, it's not this bazooka package that we saw that we saw in March in December, right. and, you know, last April of March. Right. So, I mean, I think the, so, so, so I would say that, uh, it, I would say that given that, I, I mean, I think people are going to be surprised how strong economic growth is this year and surprised how weak it is the year after that. Cool. I like it. <laughs> and I've chewed up an hour of your time. Dr. Jake Meyer, where can uh, listeners who want to learn more about how you think about the economy hear about how you think about the economy or read about it? Um, so, so actually, the the best place would be so in my job in my job at, at Swiss Re. One of the things that uh, one of the things that that I write and we publish is the is the U.S. macroeconomic outlook, and it comes out once a month. So you can get it at the uh, you can you can go to the Swiss Re Institute. It's published the second week of of every month. Uh, it's just a very short two page newsletter, kind of kind of laying out what we think about the economy. Um, I also you know I, I'll also post it on social media and. And LinkedIn and such, so you can you know you can find it there. But yeah, and then and then also my uh, and also we uh, you know we at the institute publish a um, a global macro outlook, um, or I should say, a global macro and financial risks uh, uh, you know two page news or uh, you know several page newsletter every uh, every month as well. So I mean, you, so if you're if you're interested in in in, in hearing more about uh, uh, you know about what we about what we at Swiss Re think about what's going on in the macro economy, I, I definitely suggest checking those out. Excellent. I'm going to put those up on the show notes, everyone. So just go to reconsidermedia.com, go to the latest episode. You'll, well, unless you're listening to this for a while, and, and then just go to podcasts, find um, search tags for Jake Meyer, and you'll find all of our Jake Meyer episodes. And you can see, you know, what's cool about this is like we've got a kind of an archive. You can go back a few years and see, you know, what did Jake and Eric think about what's going to happen to the world and uh, find out how we did. Um, I have re-listened recently. I'm not going to spoil anything too much, but it's actually it's actually really fascinating. So uh, anyway, to to hear more about Jake's stuff or read more about Jake's stuff, go to Swiss Re. Um, if you can't find it on your own, go to the show notes for this episode and follow, follow those links from there. So yep, um, and you can actually ahead. you can actually do uh, you can actually do newsletter subscriptions as well. Um, and, we, and we have another series called Economic Insights. That's it's not technically the the macro outlook, but it's. It's, you know, it's quite interesting stuff. Like I, I published, uh, me and my, my colleague and I published one recently on the U.S. housing market, for example. So it's all just select topics. So, so if, you, if you head there and you can sign up for the email newsletter, it's, uh, you, know, you might find it quite interesting. Hopefully. Awesome. 
Dr. Dr. Jake Meyer, thank you so much for joining us once again. A ball as always. Listeners, uh, hope you enjoyed. Feedback is always welcome. Eric at reconsidermedia.com. And Jake, stay safe. Uh, we'll see you. I'll see you uh, when we're all vaccinated. Sounds good. Thanks again. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.